0: If you stay silent because you are avoiding those tough conversations or you are avoiding the conflict, people feel silence with the worst possible outcome. It's just human nature. And so you create a lot of anxiety, you remove psychological security, and you create an environment in which people cannot do their best work. So I think it's just very important that we train our leaders, that we support our leaders as well in being able to hold that discomfort and have those conversations.
1: Welcome to the Level Up Leadership Podcast. This is the go-to podcast for chronically busy leaders and small business owners who are ready to get out of the weeds and start leading. The weekly episodes have micro-leadership lessons focused on how to level up your leadership and help you to be 1% better every day. It's all about growing your leadership wisdom, building your team, and being the leader people want to work for. So let's get into it. Today's podcast guest is the ever-impressive, honest, and open Liz Bradford. She has 20 years of diverse leadership experience, having worked across three continents and some huge firms. She's currently the Managing Director of Wholesale Banking at HSBC Asia, based in Hong Kong, as well as the CEO of Transform Perform. Her passion is employee engagement well-being and culture specifically in nurturing healthy, inclusive cultures and tackling toxic ones. One of the things I love about this conversation today with Liz is how open she is about her experience, the ups and the downs, and some of the gems she's learned about leadership along the way talking about a defining moment in your leadership journey that's had a significant impact and one that's been really defining for you I think is defining for so many people that I talk to but it's not something we often talk about out loud. Would you mind sharing your defining moment for leadership?
0: Yeah, of course. And I think it's a shame that we don't talk about it more out loud. Because I think the reason it's so defining is it brings you down to the humanity of all of us, regardless of what position we're in. And Mm -hmm. as you can probably tell from my accent, I'm British. So I was brought up in very much a kind of always stiff upper lip don't show too much emotion type don't show any weakness type way. And it's a long time ago now. But so the first time I shared this story and the fact that my defining leadership moment is probably when I burn out and then not just once, but managed to burn out 1.5 times. You're such an overachiever, Liz. You had to do it twice. <laughs> the point 0.5 was when I became the realisation that really it was me, not the environment. So the first time I'd spent 10 years working in London, I was working in investment banking. It was very intense. By all intents and purposes on paper, I had a very successful career and I was absolutely going somewhere and then I was offered a promotion and I found myself at my kitchen table in floods of tears and just realizing I couldn't do this anymore. And I couldn't do it even for another two years in that new role. So this is before burnout was a known thing, before resilience was a thing. And I felt the only response was to pack up my life, pack up my husband, move to the other side of the world. And then while I was traveling around Asia a little bit on my way to Australia at the time, I was lucky enough to be headhunted for a role back in banking. So having sworn I'd never go back into banking, I did. And after about just under a year, I I found myself sort of at that precipice again. And that's what made me realize it was such a different context. So it was in a very different culture. It was a super collegiate place to work. It was a very different kind of environment. And I realized really that it was my behaviors, my lack of boundaries, my work ethic that I felt was necessary to be successful that was driving the burnout and that I not only needed to, but it was within my power to change those things in order to become a better leader and become someone that people should follow rather than someone who was role modeling being very much the sort of the negative traits of what I've been brought up with.
1: I think these experiences are often the exit points people have in leadership. So like, I'm not cut out for it. I don't really get taught how to do it. And it reminds me, your story reminds me of a tool in coaching. And I know as a fellow coach, it's one that you'll probably be aware of. And it's the sailboat. So there's the idea that you are the sailboat and you've got a sail and you can have wind in your sails and you've got a hull and is there a hole in your hull and like who's rowing your sailboat? And there's a whole wonderful metaphor about a sailboat. There's also the sailboat that's in the water and it's the water that you're in and the waves that crash through and the ocean that you're in. And I think a lot of people will change jobs or change industries thinking there's a problem with the ocean and the water that I'm in. And often that is the case, but sometimes it's our boat and how we're looking after it. And we can put our boat in a different ocean which can be you can go to a different environment and then the same stuff pops up and I think it's a good analogy of the story that you've shared and sometimes the really confronting part is to realize that it's in our control that can be
0: (laughs) the really scary part right Mm -hmm. I mean I've never heard that analogy before but it's a perfect Mm. one like it really does make sense and I think obviously the more senior roles that you're taking as well as you go on through your leadership journey I don't know if you can stretch the analogy this far but you've got other people in that sailboat so you also need to be conscious of the environment you're creating for them because we filter that for other people and the way in which we show up is contagious if you just chuck it all in and bail then other people are likely to follow or think it's just too hard whereas if you do what sometimes is the harder work of facing into the fact that a lot of it is within your control then actually it, it kind of really helps other people and I think that brings us back to the point of it's good to be open and transparent Mm. about the challenges you're having as a leader, because it means that other people see that you don't have to be invincible all the time to do it, and that we really are all human, and that it's something that we all struggle with sometimes.
1: Particularly how I learned leadership, which was in quite a masculine environment. I didn't realize there were other ways, and it was about having the right answer, and it was about being tough. A lot of my understanding of what leadership was, the ocean that I was in, I didn't realize that there were different oceans, but that also shaped the boat that I was. Something else that I loved about your story, when you talk about burnout and how you've had to change how you lead, you also talk a bit about that transformation and we can change and transform as people, but we also have our team, our company that changes and transforms. And I think what everyone's experiencing at the moment is the environment around us changing and transforming. And I know one of your areas of expertise is all around transformation. <laughs> and I wondered if you could share a little bit about leadership and transformation, some of the things that you've learned that perhaps the rest of us might not have to learn the hard way because of your experiences.
0: I've certainly learned some things the hard way, and I'm very, <laughs> very happy to share on this. So yeah, as you say, like my whole job is transformation. It's driving mm-hmm. large scale transformation programs. And a lot of the work I do at the moment is around to your point. There are very key inflections at the moment around, you've got Gen Z coming into the workflow, you've got AI, you've got big programs of change in a lot of organizations where we are seeing them shift shape and the way in which we work as well. I think one thing that I've learned over the last 20 years in financial services and driving transformations, which have typically been tech ones, is that actually it's much more about the people. So it's 20% the technology change, it's 80% the cultural change. And if you don't focus at least 80% of your time energy resource communication around that cultural change your transformation will fail mm-hmm. and it's really about having the courage to sometimes face into a lot of those challenging conversations and be empathetic and hold some of that discomfort for other people that if you don't learn how to do that and if you don't build your own resilience up so that you can do that you will really struggle to bring people along on that transformation journey with you. So I think a huge part of it is about transparency and setting a North Star that people aim towards and explaining that there is going to be ambiguity along the way. And that it's okay to feel very uncomfortable about that. That's what transformation feels like. No human likes change. Some of us claim we do, but we only really like change that we're in control of. So if you can set that North Star and say, look, some of this is going to feel very uncomfortable. What we need to be able to do is have a dialogue about it at all times. And we need to be able to work through some of those challenges together. But this is where we're going. People will be much more likely to get behind and help with that transformation and want to be a part of it and co-create what you're doing. And I see this a lot at the moment in organizations. If you stay silent because you are avoiding those tough conversations or you are avoiding the conflict, people feel silence with the worst possible outcome. It's just human nature. And so you create a lot of anxiety, you remove psychological security and you create an environment in which people cannot do their best work. So I think it's just very important that we train our leaders, that we support our leaders as well in being able to hold that discomfort and have those conversations.
1: Have you got any examples around like transformation or difficult conversations so people can get a bit of like context or feel a bit what it's like if they're not used to it?
0: So maybe if I touch on one very live one at the moment, which I think a lot sure. of organizations are starting to have, and that's around augmentation with some of the technologies that are coming. So there's a lot of excitement on the one hand around things like chat GPT and AI, and then there's a lot of fear on the other hand. And if you look mm. at what sells movies, you've got like Mission Impossible saying that AI is the enemy, that kind of stuff. But there's a lot of stuff in the news around it'll replace 50%, 30%, 70%, depending on which day you're reading the news of all jobs. And until we get people comfortable with how we experiment with that and how we build the future of work together people will be very resistant. It's just natural. And I think one of the conversations we're certainly having at the moment within the firm that I work for is that it isn't AI that's going to replace your job. It's the people that can use AI that will replace your job or your role. So what we're trying to do is create capacity so that they can retrain and learn those skills, but we do need them to then want to and be motivated to do that. And the minute you say create capacity, people think cost cuts. And so it's about forming that common language with people. And it's about making sure that people understand where you're going with the whole piece and the skill sets that are needed and that you are trying to set people up to be successful in the future and to help you create the organization of future rather than they are a number and they can be replaced. Mm. But because there's so much silence about it in some firms at the moment, then you see a lot of attrition and you see a lot of concern around, well, I'm just going to get replaced by a machine. Why have any loyalty to the organization kind of thing? That's a very live example, I think, for a lot of firms at the moment. And then restructuring generally a lot of organizations are restructuring across the whole globe at the Mm -hmm. moment. And you see some very extreme examples like Twitter slash X slash whatever it's called today. And then where he's now having to backtrack and then you see others where it's just sort of death by a thousand cut Mm -hmm. and people are never sure. And I think from very personal experience, those I have found driving too many changes at once can be a mistake. So I would always advise, be very strategic about what you can land and how much change your people can absorb at any one point in time and be Mm -hmm. very clear in your communication about why it's happening, why you are making very specific changes and what happens then to the people whose roles have been removed or anything else so that people know that you are taking care of people as opposed to, again, it can be a bit easy to hide sometimes, especially when you're feeling tired or burnt out yourself. And it doesn't help with the culture. It doesn't create an environment in which people can thrive.
1: And I think it comes back to your point, any lack of information, wherever there's a gap, people's minds go to worst case scenario and they play out that movie. And whether it is the case or isn't, in the case, it doesn't matter anymore because they've already made that movie Mm. and therefore make decisions based on it. And your point about people don't like change unless they're in control of it. If people are feeling unsure, uncertain of what's happening, or there's a lot of change in the company and they don't have certainty around it, one thing they can have certainty of or control of is changing a job. No doubt they're going to be in the same situation in the other company, but they feel like they had control over it. And maybe it comes back to the sailboat and the ocean. They're taking their sailboat into the new ocean, but the ocean is still full of water.
0: Couldn't agree more. And there is something that feels very empowering about taking that control, but I think it's a very short-lived triumph. Mm -hmm. And then to your point, you find you're just back in a very similar ocean, same sailboat.
1: Something Liz that you do that I would say 95% of people in leadership positions and senior roles within companies do is overcommit. And if I'm honest, that's probably how we got to the positions that we did because we took on more than what we probably thought was possible and just had some belief that just keep on going. And the more you achieve, the more you tend to be given. Mm -hmm. And it just continues up to the point where probably you burn out. What have you learned from your own experiences of being a serial overcommitter, the good, the bad, and the ugly? Because I can (laughs) tell you my personal overcommitment has got me doing crazy things, both personally and professionally, that there's a small percentage of me that is so grateful that I overcommit and do more. I don't think things through enough, otherwise I wouldn't do half the things I do. And I love that I've had these great experiences, but there's a point. And finding that point is a challenge for me. And I'm not sure if it's something that you've managed to find, but I feel like I've got a friend in you and an overcommitter. <laughs> I'm certainly an overcommitter,
0: and I always have been. And I think that is very common in leaders. Mm -hmm. I think it's also very common in females, if I'm Mm -hmm. honest, not really trained to say no and don't really have that conditioning. And I'm very hypocritical on this. So when I train clients or when I'm talking to my people, I always talk about the concept of periodic training and I have a background as an endurance athlete. And with periodic training, you'll push yourself right up into the point where you can't go any further. And then you have a rest period. And then after that rest period, you can push yourself to a new peak and a new height because you're building muscle, you're building mental agility, you're building endurance the whole time. But that rest period is super important. So the overcommitment or to your point, taking on something that's a little bit more than you might if you really thought about it, you might do. That can Mm -hmm. be a positive thing Mm -hmm. as long as you then have the recovery so that you recuperate. Your comfort zone starts to stretch and it gets wider so you can go further and further outside it. But if you don't have that, that's where you hit burnout. And that's what I have a tendency to do because I know I can personally just keep going and I have maybe a little bit too much of Angela Duckworth's grit. That's fine if it's you as an individual because the fallout is you and maybe the closer relationships. And I don't mean it's fine as in it's okay, but that's a limited fallout. Mm -hmm. But when you're leading teams and maybe that's 20 people, 200 people, 2000 people, 20,000 people, if you are overcommitting on all of their behalf as well, then you will reach a tipping point very quickly whereby you start to lose people. And you lose your followership, they lose their self-confidence in themselves, they lose confidence in the team, and you are setting the whole team up for failure. And that's really not a great outcome. So neither is a great outcome, but it's also being very conscious of the boundary between your natural ability to go, yes, I'm going to do that, and then see if it happens, but then doing that on behalf of a team and being able to draw boundaries on that one.
1: I really like that analogy with being an endurance athlete. I'm like the 100-meter sprinter for sure. It's only because I'm in and out, I'm off, and then I'm exhausted. And it's just also how I work, like all in sprints. So this idea taken from endurance sport had never occurred to me. Mm. To work in seasons, like a flower doesn't season the whole year round, so you've got to have gaps in between. But I think that is a wonderful example of stretch back, stretch again. It's a super effective way of Mm.
0: building strength, whether that's in the way in which you work or any other skill or any other physical strength. But Mm -hmm. you have to remember the gap. You have to remember the break. Especially the last three or four years, we don't have breaks in the way we used to. So even when we go on leave, we take laptops or Blackberries or our Mm. mobiles. And in the evenings, we have a tendency to go home and then log back on after dinner and after story time and everything else. Mm. And so we're not recovering in the way that we used to. And that then becomes chronic and you get chronically stressed and then you really cannot perform at the level that you used to be able to perform at.
1: Absolutely true. I love that idea. I'm going to take that one on board. That's going to be my 1% from today. Or maybe I shouldn't pick too quick. (laughs) I'll wait and see. It's definitely a short runner. If I think back probably decades ago, it was all about the soft skills and we're learning about emotional intelligence and it kind of fell out of fashion and there's always something new. I'm curious to know, when you talked about transformation being 80% people, where does emotional intelligence and understanding of self fit into the business context and leadership context these days? It's absolutely
0: fundamental to driving change and we are all driving change all the time now. You don't get to stay with the status quo anymore. And I think that the empathy side, the EQ side of it is absolutely critical if you want to bring people along with you. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing about leadership. There's no point saying I'm a leader if people aren't following. So if they don't know that you are invested in them, if they don't know that they are heard, if you're not investing the time in genuinely understanding where people are coming from and taking their world to and then putting that into how you do co-create where you're going, then they can't follow. Why would they? So I do think it's absolutely fundamental. I do also think, and I've seen this quite a lot before, like IQ will get you so far. So being super smart, being very technical will get people so far. But if you don't then learn the EQ piece, you will either burn yourself out or you'll burn your credibility out or you'll burn your people out or worst case, all three. So you really do need to understand that generally we are dealing with humans in what Mm -hmm. we do. Like our customers are humans, our people are humans. If you take that piece out and the term soft skills really triggers me, so I apologize if I flinched when you said it.
1: (laughs) I don't think I've said it in probably 10 years myself.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But they are so hard. So soft skills is completely the wrong term. And the only reason they're called soft skills is they weren't mechanic skills. And this was, I think, maybe 40, 50 years ago when they were defined. So it was an engineering term for hard skills and soft skills, but it just meant it wasn't a mechanical skill. But now we can train robots to do everything that's mechanical. So they're not soft skills, they are human skills and they are what differentiate us. And they're very often the hardest ones to tap into because you just want to shut down, especially if you've had a rough day or if you lack self-awareness or you're having a hard time. So I do think that they are absolutely fundamental. fundamental to the way in which we lead. And I think whether it's self-leadership and self-awareness or then engaging with other people, you're not going to get very far unless you can actually develop those skills. And they are skills that can be honed over time as well. So as with anything, the more you practice, the more natural it becomes, the better you get at it. And so it's important to be quite conscious, I think, about that at times.
1: Is that something that you feel that you've learned along the way through certain education, through mentors? How did you learn these skills? So I learned them through coaching.
0: And actually, I learned them from someone coaching me. And it was the first time I'd come into contact with the coaching universe, mm-hmm. which was when I was on my trajectory for my second burnout. And I had a fantastic coach in Australia. And she taught me about three pillars at the time. So you had the physical wellbeing component. So looking after yourself physically, so you could show up yes. and invest time in your mental well-being and your emotional awareness and how you were engaging with others. So self-awareness and then how you're engaging and interacting with people, and then your connected wellbeing. So how are you contributing? How are you interacting with wider groups? What are you giving back? How are you finding flow? That kind of thing. And so that's how I was introduced to the concepts. And then being a bit of a nerd, I then deep dived into some of it because the first bits worked. So then I was like, oh, let's try the rest. And that for me, definitely set my leadership journey on a different trajectory. So up until that point, I was doing very well on the IQ point. It was at a time when you brought your work person to work, your work self, and then your personal self was left at home. Like. God forbid you were to share that. (laughs) That's when I learned that once you start to combine the two and you are much more authentic with people, and don't get me wrong, there are boundaries. I know that it can go too far on that front. But when you start to actually show people who you are and connect with them on an individual level and get to know them, then you can go so much further, both in your own personal development, but also as a team. So it's really about how do you build your personal resilience, but Mm -hmm. also how do you build your organizational resilience by creating those stronger connections between people.
1: And I think the fact you've had 1.5 burnouts and you're still in the industry tells me that you've been (laughs) applying these skills as you've gone along.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure my team would tell you that maybe I need to listen to myself a little bit at the moment because it's that year end piece. Everyone's pushing super hard and they're like, when are you going to ease up? So yeah, come Christmas time, we'll calm down.
1: Do you have favorite books or podcasts or anything in the leadership space that you've found useful for you? I read
0: quite a mishmash of stuff all the way between technical and I don't know if we would call it self-help anymore, but more around self-development and everything else. I'm a very big fan of Adam Grant's work. Mm-hmm. And he's just brought out a new book. I'm a very big fan of Brene Brown's work as well. And the whole piece around vulnerability really was a game changer for me back in 2014 or wherever it was. Again, back to that concept of like being yourself and the courage it takes to do that. And I think anything podcast wise, I listen to quite a lot of stuff around. There's an Angela Duckworth podcast that was yes. with the book on grit, asking yes. stupid questions. Yes, no such thing as dumb questions. And then I really actually like the podcast called Diary of a CEO. And he brings in a lot of very different kind of thought leaders and very successful people, but talks very much about their journeys as individuals and how they've gotten to that point. And I think that's a really nice way to get very diverse perspectives mm-hmm. around and it very often goes into how we emotionally connect with people, how we build resilience, and you know, people who make it to the top and realize actually, was this it? And then start resetting their expectations and realizing that the material stuff, yes, sure, it's lovely, but it's not why we're here and it doesn't fulfill you. So I find that quite a good sort of level setter when I'm hiking with the dog in the morning.
1: A good reminder. And I certainly was in this space as well in the corporate world. And it's everything that you are surrounded by. It's the water that you're in and all the things that you believed success was and the trajectory that you're on and ticking things off and then getting to the point where you've done all the things you felt you were supposed to, whether that was career or personal or life, and then still feeling this sense of emptiness I'm wondering, have I worked all to get here? And I've missed the point. It
0: happens so frequently and I see it a lot in clients and I see a lot in is as well. And I think if we don't do the work, and it doesn't have to be a lot of work, but if we don't do the work to identify what really matters to us and our core values and really what feels like success to us, then we end up living the lives that other people design for us, whether it's wittingly or
1: unwittingly. Consciously or unconsciously. I totally think a lot of people do it unconsciously. And it's Mm -hmm. only when you reach what you thought was the finish line and you realize it isn't, the moment happens. And I see it a lot with clients. And that's often when people will come to me because they're at a cross. Roads. Do I throw it all in? Is this what I want to do? Why am I here? And I know you wear two different hats, probably many different hats. We heard about that over before. Can you explain <laughs> a little about your two different hats to give a bit of context?
0: Sure. So my day job hat, I work in financial services, I work in banking, and I run a fairly large team across Asia, effectively in the chief operations office. So we're the ones that do all of the work that no one else wants to do. And it's our job to make sure everything runs and stays running and runs faster and, you know, nicer, quicker, faster, everything. So that's where some of the overcommitment comes in, because I'm like, yeah, of course, we can fix that. Of course, we can build that. Of course, we can change that. <laughs> So yeah, I'm the chief operating officer for North Asia and that hat. And I've been doing banking work or in financial services for 20 years. Mm-hmm. And then about seven or eight years ago, as a result of my own personal transformation, got very heavily into personal training and then into organizational development coaching and executive mm-hmm. coaching as well. So my second hat is as the founder of Transform Perform. Based on diagnostics, I design organizational coaching programs to transform cultures. So really looking from the leadership all the way down through organizational design principles into how do you create the culture that aligns with the values. Every company has values. They all are painted on the wall. But how do you make that the DNA of your culture? And how do you train your leaders in EQ? How do you train them in listening as opposed to Telling, And then how do you create an environment where people are very organically connected, but have a lot of psychological security so that they can actually speak up and contribute and feel that they are a part of where the organization is going as well. So that's the second half. And I'm very lucky that I'm allowed to co-join the two and operate in that capacity within the bank that I work as well.
1: I think this links beautifully to the comments before about authenticity and about that leadership is an 80% human Like 20% is about strategy and like setting the goals and the plans, but it's the 80% that's human. And no matter where AI takes us in the future, it will still be 80% human because it will be 80% managing AI.
0: Absolutely. I know that there's a lot of scary titles out there and stuff or headlines out there, but no, that's not going anywhere. And until we learn how to fundamentally connect well as humans and look after ourselves and look after each other, then you won't have a successful culture.
1: Is there anything else that you'd like to add or feel that if you could give a little piece of wisdom about leadership, perhaps for someone who's feeling a bit uncertain at the moment?
0: So it's a bit of a cliche, but I think the thing I always end up tapping back into is be the leader that you would want to follow, whatever that might look like at the moment. So if someone's thinking of tapping out or if someone needs something, listen to yourself, understand what you need. It might be that you need a break, it might be that you do need a change, whatever that may be, but listen to yourself. And then the other thing I would say, and this maybe goes back to your water analogy, surround yourself with the people that you aspire to be like as well. So we all have energizers and then energy Mm -hmm. vampires and the environment in which we're in, fundamentally changes the way in which we operate think feel respond so just try and shift especially if you're feeling drained and a lot of people are at this time of year and at this point in the economic cycle and everything else surround yourself with the people that inspire you to be a better version of yourself
1: let it happen by osmosis
0: sometimes we all need a little bit of osmosis thank you very much Liz I really loved our chat today my pleasure thank you so
1: much for having me